and go almost yes live nice one there we go hello 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 ladies and gentlemen boys and girls welcome to vux world the penultimate vux world for 2022 so merry christmas to you all if you are wrapping up this week um excited very much excited today for a conversation with jim robot and i'm changing my name today to conversational ai so it's conversational ai and jim robot jim welcome thanks for having me i really appreciate it <laughs> it's a pleasure absolute pleasure I'm really a big fan I'm loving what you're doing I, I follow you on LinkedIn I see all your posts and content it's really good stuff so thank you for spending the time with us yeah thank you and, and I appreciate that I you know there's a lot of people creating great content out there uh, and likewise I watch all of your broadcasts and read your content and um, yeah you know we've got you, you've had a lot of them on your show it's where I get majority of my information now really LinkedIn Mm. Uh, and it's where I try to to share my information so that people can more people can come into this industry. Mm. It's funny LinkedIn, isn't it? Because like I don't know whether it's having the same effect in other areas and with people with other interests and other industries and stuff like that. But for me, it's exactly the same. Like I get most of my information from LinkedIn. Uh, I I use LinkedIn more than any other social networking kind of platform and it just feels or seems as though everyone who's interested in conversational AI customer experience automation intelligent automation digital transformation all of those people seem to be spending more time on LinkedIn over the last sort of five years it's it's crazy yeah I don't know about you but when Microsoft purchased it I was like head in my hands thinking oh no it's going to be ruined but actually (laughs) I really like on the whole how it's changed you know I think I still think LinkedIn events are an absolute nightmare to admin and set up and analyze and the data is quite poor. Uh, But in terms of, you know, putting out ideas, uh, especially text, I think it works really, really well. Um, Yeah. There's no value in reactions. I'm sure you've realized that as well. Uh, But the the value uh, that, yeah, yeah, the reach increase you get from comments is phenomenal. Uh, Yeah. And I've got a friend who's a writer. Uh, he's a digital nomad and he's been writing, traveling the world for the last seven years. And I recently kind of pushed him towards LinkedIn and it's working wonders for him and his brand. Yeah, it's good. I mean, they've introduced some good stuff recently. I think the live, LinkedIn Live's been good. I think they could promote the live streams better. Yeah. Because in my, what I've noticed is, and this is just from being a kind of consumer of other people's live stuff, I get it in my notification feed but I very rarely see it on my actual news feed. Correct. And so I think more people would probably watch it if they had the opportunity to see it in the news feed and get a sample of it. Whereas when it just comes in your notification sort of list, it's very easy to just skip over it and ignore it. I think it is um, for the likes of us because we get so many notifications. Uh, yeah. But, you know, if you've registered for it, then it should perhaps sit in the last hour before the event goes live at the top of your feed. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, yeah. Just there, so we get more viewers. Yeah. Basically. yeah, yeah. The try, you can see the trying to kind of make it into more of a platform where people stick around on it. Yeah. Whereas, like before, and same thing with Twitter in the early days, it was like you'd go there to get links to somewhere else. Yes. Whereas LinkedIn seems to be trying to do a good job of, I mean, it's 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 doing all right. You know, the newsletter does well, the broadcasts do okay, the posts, organic reach for posts is still pretty good on LinkedIn. I right? think it's so fantastic. It's, yeah, it took a bit yeah. of a hit middle of this year, um, but then uh, basically, you you learn to work with the algorithm. You know this. Mm, um, mm. 
whereas reactions first part of uh, this year reactions did really really well to give you organic reach it just middle of the year it just the bottom fell out of it uh, mm. it really does um advance you to be consistent with your posting and you know that as well mm. if you're consistent mm. then you get really good reach i've been quiet for the last couple of weeks so i know my reach when i start posting again is going to be mm. pitiful but as yeah. soon as you get back consistent and they know you're posting consistent, you start getting that organic reach again. It's pretty fantastic. Mm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Nice. Uh, so, yeah. So, well, yeah, as I said, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So uh, I called this lessons from designing over 300 bots. I haven't made that stat up, have I? I'm pretty sure you told me that you've worked on over 300 bots before. Probably, yeah, well over that now. I'll stop counting. <laughs> Interesting. So when did you start working in, in with chatbots and conversational AI? So it would have been 2017. Um, I, I don't know if it's, my route was non-traditional or not, or if there isn't a traditional route because conversational AI hasn't been around for 30 years. But um, yeah, I was working in a startup um, and we needed a way to educate people about the product that we were selling. Uh, messenger bots had just started to become a thing so I went out and tried a few of the, the basic messenger bot platforms settled on one um, built this bot uh, to sell this product and it did amazingly well and, and I, mean, I mean really high engagement that was the first time I ever built a bot made loads of mistakes learned, learned how to, to, to write conversationally um, and then I was hooked from that moment on I was absolutely hooked and this was at the very low end messenger end, you know, mm. so you, you haven't got any of the fancy stuff. Um, <laughs> and then I just, I, I'm, a, I'm an incessant reader anyway. So I just started reading and just getting every book I could find on linguistics and conversational AI and chatbots and AI in general. I was just consuming, consuming, consuming all the time. And I just started building bots, you know, literally not for money. Just I would look at a, a niche I'd find five websites in that niche. I would analyze their websites, get an idea of the company, their culture, their voice, and I would just make a bot, not even show it to anybody. <laughs> and I was just just bang, bang, learning it, learning it, putting in the hours, basically. Mm. And then after that, I started reaching out to small businesses at the start um, and building bots for anybody that would take one. Uh, mm. So I went through the rough and smooth. You know, working with small businesses, they, they will hang you over the hot coals if they don't like what mm. you've done. Mm. Uh, somehow, I think big businesses give you a bit more leeway sometimes. Um, <laughs> so I learned the hard way, made lots of mistakes, had lots of success, and then realized that I really wanted to do the big, fat, juicy project, projects. You know, mm. the ones where they're, you know, it's having thousands and thousands of conversations a day. Um, and it kind of just almost manifested that structured my LinkedIn, started, you know, creating content and it, and it happened naturally, basically. Not naturally, mm. I made it happen, basically. Yeah, 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 definitely. Nice, interesting. So so you mentioned there that you mentioned a couple of times you made a lot of mistakes. Oh. What mistakes in particular can you remember that you think were kind of really good teaching moments? You know, the biggest one, and I still see people do this now, is they basically try to take the content of the, the business website and turn it into a conversational agent. And it is, mm. it is bloody awful. It's, it's, it's totally the wrong approach. My 50 chatbots, first 50 chatbots were probably built that way. 
until mm. I realized that that is just an awful customer experience. It doesn't really add any value. Um, then I, I came up with this, con- this concept of the MVB, minimum viable bot, uh, and started to take this totally different approach, where is what we're looking for is one or two really big problems to solve and how the conversational AI could have an impact, show some value, and then start to expand out that kind of iterative approach. Uh, and that's kind of the, the, the system I've used, uh, which has served me very well. Um, it's meant I've worked with lo- across lots of different niches. I've tried not to tie myself down to a niche because uh, I want to keep it interesting. Mm, interesting. So taking website content, just basically repurposing and you can tell you can tell when chatbots have done that because you you get served about three different speech bubbles worth of rubbish and you have to kind of like the worst ones are the ones where you have to actually scroll up a little bit to get to the first part of it all (laughs) uh so what what are some of the other things then do you think that um that you either kind of thought i won't do that again or or even things maybe that you observe today mistakes maybe that still happen as you said that that you learned sort of way back how to avoid? Um, so a couple of things I see, and, and, and I've made these mistakes as well, is trying to be, is trying to solve every customer's every problem. So going too wide too soon. Mm. Um, you know, when you, when you analyze, if you've got some good conversation data anyway, across CRMs, email, SMS, whatever it is, if you've got some data, you can do some pretty good analysis and make some fairly good assumptions about where you could have the biggest impact with your MVB. Um, sometimes you don't have that, uh, and you have to take some guesses. And that's, this is part of the reason I like the iterative kind of approach. But, yeah, trying to solve every customer's every problem with a bot when actually, you know, if you can, if you can just take 15 20% of customer queries that don't then have to end up in the inbox of a human or on live chat for a human, you're doing a good job. And mm-hmm. then it's just an iterative approach from there. Um, you know, if, you're, if your only reason to have a chatbot is to, you know, keep customers away, away from your people, then there's the wrong reasons, I think. Definitely. It seems to be the first thing that some, some companies try is that, though which is like, let's just do this and we'll try and either prevent people from getting through to an agent if they call, or yeah. we know that the website leads to contact, so let's just do something on the website. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> using, I always find it funny where people use website content to build a chatbot. Yeah. And it's like the content's on your website. Exactly. Yeah, it's all you do. <laughs> What's it doing in your chatbot? Yeah. Just yeah. stick it in a you know, make sure your search is working well or like you review your information architecture or your SEO or something like that, you know, like it's already there. Yeah. Yeah, for me, the two biggest reasons to to implement conversational AI is to be available 24/7 and uh, to be where the customer wants to be serviced. If you know that, that's the two big drivers for me, and then after that becomes all the you know reducing operational overheads and everything else, and you know learning learning from conversations, which obviously is important. But for me, those first two are the really important reasons. Uh, it does, it does depend on what you're trying to do with the chatbot. I I've recently started working with franchises. It's a niche. It's a niche I've wanted to work with for, for a long time, mm. um, and I've done. Um, some for franchise gyms, which was really interesting challenge. Uh, 
Um, I don't know if you know, but these franchise gyms, their biggest challenge is to get people across the threshold of the gym, potential members. And they do all sorts of initiatives to get people across that threshold. So really, all the chatbot needs to do is get people across the threshold. Because Mm. once you get across the threshold, then there's people that know that gym, work in that gym, friendly faces, healthy-looking fitness professionals who can then, you know, convince, do the convincing, do the sales. Mm. Uh, So I think in the world of um, franchise chatbots could be quite unique i'm actually working in another front with another franchise at the moment in the care sector for the uk uh so they've got i think 30 sites across the country at the moment mm. uh, which which brings its own challenges because if you imagine you've got 30 sites all having conversations all with their own nlp uh with the current platform they're on and i'm trying mm. to work with the platform now to make a global nlp so you've got local uh, conversational uh, conversation and intent for each site, but then you've also got kind of global intent, something mm. we're working on at the moment. It's quite fascinating. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. Interesting. The, the, uh, so with the franchises, I'm assuming you're working at the kind of the, the franchise level, not necessarily yeah. individual franchisees. So I've done both. Uh, yeah. I've learned the hard way that you need to be working at the head office level. Yeah. really um because there's a lot of, otherwise you get a lack of consistency across you know but brand is very important with franchises if you look at the top 10 franchises you know it's your kfc your mcdonald's your hertz car rentals all of them it's big strong brands mm. um, franchises very brand uh focused even if it's something like i don't know window screen repair you know or the aa for instance whatever whatever it might be Brand is really powerful and, you know, the voice needs to be the same across. It's, it should be, they should all be working off the same system. You know, yeah. it's a, a franchise is a system of operating. So it yeah. makes total sense that it's one, it's one voice across all of the franchises with slight per localization and personalization. So, you know, not much in terms, I did think about this, about kind of a, uh, a Midlands voice, a Northern voice, a Southern voice, <laughs> but actually you're overthinking it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It, I mean, the similarities with franchises to kind of like global, not even global enterprises, but like, I suppose if you look at uh, any sort of large enterprise, they've got lots of different teams lots of those teams end up kind of like building their own instances of various types of bots often in, on different platforms um and so there's there's inconsistencies there you would think that at least with one company it would be easier to to get some consistency uh but it doesn't seem to go that way and then you go to the kind of global level and mm. obviously you've got language support to deal with but you've still got lots of companies that do in you know, their own. Every market's got their own tools. Some markets have got multiple tools. There's no consistency with the persona. I suppose Vodafone's Toby. You could you could draw a distinction. Yeah, I was just there about to say, what about yeah. Vodafone? Because yeah, that's that's the only consistent. I don't know if you remember when they first launched their conversational AI. It was awful. Uh, but now I look at the New Zealand version, which is really good. Can't remember yeah. what theirs is called. It's got like a Maori name. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's a like a South America version. There's the obviously the UK European version. I think yeah. they're doing good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are. Yeah, yeah. They've had a lot of experience as well, you know. Yeah. Um, so and and it's one of those things where 
there's not actually that many examples in Europe and the UK of sort of like notable personalities in the chat. Ch- you know, you go to America, you've got Eno, you've got Erica, Alexa and Siri stem from, from the US. And, so, yeah. and you've got these kind of like, almost like not quite iconic. I wouldn't necessarily call Erica iconic, but, you know, you, it's definitely something that a lot of people, certainly in this industry, know about. Whereas in the UK, there isn't quite so much of that. Or in the in Europe, there's not quite so much of that. There's like Vodafone's Toby, you know, Love Holiday's Sandy. But I wouldn't necessarily say that Sandy is that well known, to be completely honest. And so it's like, yeah, there's, I don't know why that, that is. There doesn't seem to be as much focus on the sort of making it a branded experience, so to speak. Yeah, it's interesting. I was speaking to... Uh, or one of the botrepreneurs uh, kind of online networking events. I was speaking in the, the, the conversational design room and, and some some people there from the South Americas and they were saying how in South America they're very um, very personality driven, they're, they're bots, very mm. name focused. Um, they have really strong personalities and it, it's a cultural thing apparently. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and they play around with male versus female and you know abrupt versus soft and yeah it's yeah whole different culture it's interesting yeah yeah interesting it, obviously um i think in the uk and europe a lot of companies have kind of just tried to get some stuff out the door and it's been like let's just try and get this thing <laughs> done <laughs> uh rather than sort of make a branding effort i think we'll see more of it though i think we'll definitely see that you know i know that you know like nat west and and all that lot have got like is it cora or something like that they've all kind of got their version it's just not quite seemingly as i suppose promoted for want of a better phrase as, as some of the others but yeah i think, I think we'll definitely often, see personality being i think often they're not they're not confident in their yeah. tool yet to really push it hard yeah that's a good observation, yeah. Um, so thinking about some of those sort of iconic bots then, assistants, like Toby, like Erica, like Eno, um, and and the ones that you've worked on, you know, what do you think that sort of like, we spoke a little bit about some mistakes and so on. Like, what do you think that good assistants have in common? Um, they They're very focused on what they can do uh, as in they will do a handful of things really really well and and with some depth so mm. whether that's you know um, helping you reset your password uh, helping you recover a registration email and get it resent whatever it is they do that one thing almost seamlessly you know effortlessly with the least amount of input from the customer but they just make it happen, you know. Because mm-hmm. why does anybody go through a chatbot? Because they just they can't be they can't be putting up with hassle. They just it's almost like they just want to hand over the problem and get it solved, mm-hmm. uh, which is why I go to chatbots. Um, so when a chatbot can just take that little problem that twenty percent of calls are all about, if they can take that, you know, I recently had this a brand approach me. I never worked with them actually. Um, but they had one problem, which is 40% of their communication was asking where, where their order was. Hmm. So if they could automate that 40%, it was a massive saving. And they were hmm. having like 
thousands of those questions every day. So mm-hmm. just to be able to answer that seamlessly by just being able to interrogate their system, give an update of whether the order has been sent or not, if it's been held for any reason, whatever it might be, we would just make their life so much easier. But if you could do that one thing really, really well, people would be impressed. And mm-hmm. they'd feel serviced. Yeah. It seems it's it sounds I don't want to put words in your mouth. It sounds it sounds as though you're a fan of taking the kind of I call it the sort of bottom up approach, which is build something that serves a purpose in a very specific use case for a very specific use case. And then expand that to the next use case, then the next use case, then the next use case, then the, and then eventually when you've got enough coverage around your use cases, you can have that kind of front end which says, How can I help you? Yes. The other kind of approach is that you first begin building a kind of a shallow but wide experience, which is mainly all about routing. You might fit in some kind of like FAQ stuff in there, but it's predominantly about routing you to the right place, which is beginning with how can I help you? Yes. Figuring out what that customer intent is, using that language model in the first instance just to route them to a human and then starting to pick off the use cases that you can automate entirely. Do you, uh, do you subscribe to the former? Am I reading that right, reading between right. the lines, or, or not? I've done both. <laughs> and it all depends on the, on the client you're working with, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. It depends how open they are, uh, how quickly they want to see results, um, how big of an investment they have. Um, so there's lots of ins and outs, that, and there's a lot going on around the project team and their personality, uh, their attitude to risk, that's a biggie, you know. Some people like to see a little use case, and I had this recently. Uh, I was partnering with a, another uh, communications business, and this was with, a again, a, a franchise, like a UK national high street brand. Mm-hmm. And they had, a, this was, they were not fully convinced, so they were doing, like, this single use case, which would solve a huge problem for them. Mm. But as we were developing that uh, solution, they were already, you know, picking other ideas for other solutions and they were all starting to go into a list. So mm. both, both approaches are valid, uh, but it all depends on who you're working with uh, and their, their attitude, really. And sometimes, you know, these companies will have their own project management internal team and style. So they, they will do mm. things a certain way and, you know, I'll work with them. Uh, offering support, but support their project team and how they work. That can be a real mm. challenge. I, personally, I prefer when I'm the project project manager, to be honest. Mm. It just yeah. makes my life... Things move quicker, and it makes my life a lot easier. Yeah, plus if you've done it a number of times before, then you... Yeah risk management becomes a lot easier because you're spotting things well before they actually happen. Yeah. Whereas I think that there's a lots of, you know, product owners, product managers who... I mean, I found it interesting. I was speaking to someone the other week who their team that they have, uh, it's a it's a fairly sizable bank. Their team is full of people who are not necessarily that bothered about conversational AI. <laughs> like, it's just a project team that's been put together to do this thing. Yeah, and I found that really interesting. Unusual. It's not again. That's really yeah. not unusual. Well, it, it, it's fairly unusual for me because most of the teams that I've worked with have been like, they they really like this stuff. They're they're on LinkedIn. They're kind of really part of the community. They're really sort of up for it. And very few times have I kind of worked with a team that's like, 
this is John, he's an engineer, he doesn't give a shit about natural language understanding, and he's just here to do... But maybe, maybe it's the, on the API side, yes. But in terms of the core project team, most of what my experience has been has been people who, who are genuinely, like, really loving it. And so I found it interesting. So, so you've got, then, project managers uh, uh, who are not necessarily, you know, experienced with conversational AI. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, don't really understand I don't suppose I mean they'll understand how to manage a project but like what should be done when how long should things take who needs to be involved you know what risks can occur you know it's like it's a very difficult job so yeah I don't know if you've kind of experienced the same sort of thing where certainly from a project management point of view there are some differences is there not with conversational AI projects I think because of the way I position myself I'm actually attracting the teams that have got little interest, or the project's already failing, mm. or the, 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 the managing director normally uh, has no confidence that the team can deliver a product. So mm. I'm bought in, I think, partly because of my energy and my passion and my ability to get everybody excited about the project. Um, and that's why I like to be the project manager, because then I can... I can jimmy people along. I can dictate mm. the timelines and you know stop people. You know stop the scope creep and stop people. You know it's really nice when you're outside of an organisation because you can be a little bit brutal, mm. and you can you know you can have your stakeholders and you can say, you know we're we're going to go off track here very very soon. We're going to start start missing dates because that team are not delivering, or mm. that person. It's just not right for the team. They're having too much time out of the office. They, they miss their every single deadline. And sometimes being outside of an organization, you can get away with a lot more because you're outside of the politics. Yeah. Um, and it enables me to keep a project on track. And I, th- I think people appreciate that. Yeah. I think that's one of the skills of a good project manager, certainly an agile project manager, where, and especially if you're working with a team that is not too experienced with agile practices, yeah. Some of the best scrum masters I've worked with have been absolutely brutal. <laughs> and funnily enough, they have been external. Uh, people who, who are not associated to the, with the company don't really understand the company's culture, which I actually think is important because yeah. you don't want to necessarily mold with the culture because it might be the culture that's part of the problem. And so, yeah, some of the some of the best scrum masters that I've worked with and met have been absolutely brutal. Yeah. <laughs> and you need to, though. You need to, don't you? You do, because, you know, you're hired to do a job. And if there's people within the team that are preventing you from doing that job, you're not there to be their friend. You're there mm. to deliver on what you promise to deliver. And you're being paid handsomely for that promise. So, you know, when you're when you're external, the only thing you've got is your reputation. And I won't let anything damage that mm. because it's taken me a long time to build up my reputation. Mm, absolutely. So what's your kind of preferred methodology around project managing a kind of a conversational AI project? You've got the you've got the agile house, which is, you know, let's kind of do this incrementally, build something shippable, get that out the door iterate and improve on that and then add the next increment in the next sprint or so and kind of keep rolling rolling with it whether you decide to put it live or not is entirely up to you but kind of the idea being that you you work on incremental bits of value versus the other side of the house which i think a lot of companies have this 
intuitively built into their culture, which is the waterfall style, which is let's just build the whole thing <laughs> and uh, and then let's just ship it and see what happens. I'm very much agile. I I think whenever you're building something that is as impactful or potentially impactful as conversational AI, which can reach across the whole company and has a, can have a huge positive or negative impact on customers, I think you need, personally, I think it's an agile approach. The other, you know, the, the waterfall approach makes me very nervous. And, mm. and uh, when I've taken that approach because I've adopted however their project management style is, when I've taken that approach, I'm just incredibly nervous. I think, you know, because you're all you're always making assumptions in whatever project you do. You've never mm-hmm. got all the information. Often when you're external like I am, you don't know how valid the information is you're being fed, which can be a really, you know, for instance, one thing I've realized really this year is I'd say only about <laughs> 20% of the questions that I'm given to answer are actually even asked by customers. Mm. When I say, just give me a list of all the questions you get asked and mm. what your responses are, when the bot's been live for at least six months, I look and only 20% of those questions are ever being asked. Yeah. Yeah, and that is, that's consistent, 20 to 30%. Yeah. So yeah, all that you know, 80, 70% of time and effort has been effectively wasted when it could have been used a lot more practically. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very much the agile, iterative approach. Uh, I think it, stakeholders, I like when you can launch something quickly whilst people have still got high interest and mm. they're not being, you know, their, their attention is not being drawn elsewhere uh, and you show an instant impact and then mm. you build up a lot of goodwill and then you've got a bit more buy-in and then you deliver the second element, and then you prove that 12 weeks later, look at the impact this, this small change made. Imagine if we did this over the next 18 months, and you, you just mm. get better buy-in, I think, from stakeholders. Mm. How do you approach those kind of stakeholders that, for many, especially if they're doing it for the first time, they've got one risk to manage, which is the fact that they're working with technology that they have no clue about, really. <clears throat> and then they've got a second risk to manage, which is that the way in which we will deliver this new technology is going to be in a with a methodology and framework that we're not comfortable with or not used to. Yeah. And so you've kind of got two bits of newness to deal with. <laughs> and so... I've I've been involved. Uh, in fact, in in more recent times, it's gone a lot better and it's been a lot easier. But in the early days, I found myself kind of involved in, with a lot of organisations that culturally didn't work in an agile way whatsoever, yeah. and that viewed it as a really big risk to go live with something that in their mind was incomplete. As is exactly the same with any other type of technology. It was no different to anything I'd experienced prior with with the web and stuff like that. So have you got any kind of, you know, special kind of uh, magic dust that that helps in those conversations where you're dealing with, you know, cultures that are more akin or more comfortable with waterfall um, and less averse, uh, less, less experienced with agile? Yeah, so my personal approach, and this might sound a bit weird, is I try to find uh, within and potentially out slightly outside of the project team a couple of really keen advocates 
internal to the organization. So people that are, are really excited and on my side, but also have influence. Because mm. you are you are an outsider, mm. you know, and you can you 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 can you can be the best salesperson and sell this to people, but if you can have if you can have a couple of people, couples better internally that are totally on board with you as the individual and totally mm. understand your vision and why you think agile is tried and tested approach and works every time. If you can get them on board, then they will help you convince the people that are not on board because it's really hard when you're when you're when you're outside that's mm. really really difficult you need the you need a couple of good advocates because mm. there's going to be conversations going on that you you're totally unaware of yeah 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 and the other thing that's challenging from the outside is that often so when i when i was working in government digital transformation one of the things that i did um one of the first things i did change from where the company was, was made sure that the, the team that we needed to work on a project was relieved of duties to work on the project Ooh. to the point where we had, so my team was predominantly delivering, but then we had subject matter experts that we needed access to. And it was like a rule that we managed to get the board to buy into, which is that we absolutely have to have this person 30% of their time for argument's sake. Yeah. And thankfully i was i was kind of new so they said okay well let's let's try it and and so what it ended up being is that i almost created like i used to call it like a, an incubation chamber as such which is that this team was just disconnected from the rest of the organization but it's there to solve a very specific problem we pulled in people from the organization that we needed to do it but it just meant that we were kind of insulated and we could just get on with it and what we found is that things were delivered on time and things broadly speaking went really well sometimes there was external parties that we were reliant on third party suppliers stuff like that that scuppered things but by and large for the stuff that we can control it kind of worked then you go to being an outsider completely independent no influence really uh, influence but no authority over the business that you're working with yeah. no authority over the project team uh, and all that project team have got other jobs to do yes. and so it can be it, can it be a challenge or, or I wonder if you can explain a bit about how you perceive this challenge and, and what you can do to sort of remedy it where you're on the outside with influence but no authority in terms right. of managing the project. Yeah. So I think it's critical that when you start the project, that is high up as a risk. So mm. that is kind of top right. It's high risk, high impact on the validity of the project. So straight from day one, they understand that that's a potential issue. Yes, you're an expert, you're a subject matter expert, you've done this kind of work before, but internally people don't know you, don't trust you, potentially aren't bought into the project. And let's be honest, and I, I was the same when I used to work, I don't know if you, if you knew this from my history, but I used to work in the IT department of the housing association. Right. So I used to work a lot with local government. Um, mm. And whenever we did projects, their day job came first, the project always came second. Yeah. And that had a massive detrimental effect on projects. So for me, it's, it's kept, a, you know, it's part of the risk log. I'm very much of that old Prince 2. I, you know, I'm a Prince 2 project manager, so I always kind of go back <laughs> to that. So um, I, I keep a risk log. I actually use monday.com as my project management yeah. suite. And nice. I give my clients access to it. Sometimes I have to use their product, which I'm, you know, if I have to, I have to. But if I'm project managing it, they're using Monday.com. I provide the licenses. It just makes my life so much easier. 
And when I give my weekly update on what went well, what didn't go well, if the risks, you know, if they get, if that risk is getting tougher, higher, then I tell them, and I, I just keep chopping away at it, and I just mm-hmm. say this is a high risk, it's not getting resolved, and I ask them a question, what can we do to solve it? I don't always give them the solution, mm-hmm. but you know that's part of the that's part of the joy of project management. It can't all be easy. Mm, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> yeah, uh, what what about the people that think that so like Prince 2 is very much about kind of like everything's kind of planned everything's documented a lot of docu- very documentation heavy Prince 2 it isn't is. it um, Agile I mean people think that Agile's very light on documentation but it doesn't have to be I mean everything should have a def- definition of done you should scope everything that you're building yes. everything should be prioritised accordingly there should still be a risk log it's like it's not that there isn't any documentation it's just that the the people's external perceptions of what agile is i think is a little bit distorted have you have you observed that as well being that people just think that agile is just flying by the seat of your pants and there's exactly no real control that. that's why they see agile as high risk but i i just i'm very clear from the outset about you know you're going to get a weekly update every week which will include what was planned what was achieved what was outstanding uh, updated risk log uh, and any other things that need to be taken into consideration, or decisions log again, Prince too. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I'm very clear from the outset the kind of core documentation. I like Monday.com because I can build it the way I want it. I can keep all the documentation in one place, uh, and it's very clear because it links out to calendars what needs to be done and when. So there's no confusion. There's no oh, I didn't realise that task had been assigned to me. They bloody know. Yeah, and it cuts down on email. I bloody hate email. You know, yeah. trying to run a project with emails and threads and oh, it's just too easy to to go wrong. So yeah, whatever whatever platform you, you like, as long as it it enables you to work efficiently. And that's the other thing, when you're external and managing a project, if you let other people dictate the pace and actions and deadlines and stuff like that, you end up losing money as an external resource because they're dragging things out. You know, if I've said it's going to take 20 days of my time to deliver, you know, the MVB up to this level, delivering these key deliverables, Prince 2 again, um, yeah, it, and people are, are interfering and stuff, it starts costing me money and I'm not having that. Mm. The other the other sort of um, part that I've found difficult with agile projects not from <clears throat> not from the point of view of, of managing agile projects but from the point of view of dealing with stakeholders that have no experience with agile and we used to do training and so in some cases we do still do that uh actual training on agile project management yeah. um before a project starts just to make everyone clear and the main thing that that is is for not not the main thing but one of the real important parts about that is that communicating to the stakeholders and the people funding this stuff that working in this way might appear as though it's a bit waterfall because you've got a discovery time that's blocked out you've got alpha time that's blocked out you've got beta time that's blocked out and you've got live kind of support for a while yeah and so it it feels like it's waterfall but all that me all that this stuff means is that whatever gets done by the time that this time runs out is what gets done yeah. and so the hardest part i've found people can't seem to wrap their head around is that at the end of that beta what goes live might be everything that you can hope and wish for but it might not 
it yes. might be severely lacking in compared to what you expected it to be like yeah, yeah. because that's the nature of the agile methodology is that you build the most important stuff and you ship the most important stuff whereas exactly. people who are waterfall are just used to having everything done yeah. and so i found that to be the hardest part is is the understanding that when it gets to the end you might not get everything that you've wished for yeah so this is kind of where i go with this minimum viable bot thing so again it's a it's a bit of a mixture of waterfall and agile really i don't think there's any way of getting away from it nobody's strict either way but it's almost like this is what we want to achieve by the go live date if we only get 70 percent done we still go live yeah you know, these things if these things this seven out of the ten bits are in place we're still going to go live and we'll have the go no go decision date um, mm -hmm. you know it would have been planned out that you know how how live we're going <laughs> you know because there is that as well we might decide to go live just on the home page or just on a social media just on whatsapp for instance mm -hmm. uh whatever it might be because that's the least used channel when you know they're a bit risk averse whereas i like to just get customers on it i like mm -hmm. to be there ready in the morning nine o'clock it's going live and i'm sat on my laptop bit nervous <laughs> bit excited and it just goes live and it's always a bit of a yeah oh that went all right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not groundbreaking at the mvp yeah. stage but yeah. you know from that moment and I, I do tell people this that moment your conversational ai starts having real customer conversations is where you start really learning it's where you mm. get the good solid data mm. um I, I i personally you know i've project managed oh when I used to work in housing association, I project managed everything from Christmas parties to fleet replacement. Um, what else do they do? Office builds. Um, oh, anything and everything. And then all the IT stuff like moving from netware to windows. And you know, mm. I did every type of project. So projects don't scare me anymore. I get really mm. excited. Uh, and because I'm, I keep a firm hold of my projects, firm control, I'm not nervous at, I'm not really scared to go live. I'm, I'm mm. anxious, you know, because yeah. kind of that nervous energy that another project's about to go live. But yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think it's the most exciting part for sure, going live. Yeah. I always say it's the beginning of the project. Like with yeah. most other digital things going live is the last thing you do yeah. <laughs> and then everyone goes home and goes to bed you know what i mean i've been, i've worked in, in, in project teams in the early days of building websites and they, they'd launch the website and like for the first half hour the website going live would all be looking at real-time google analytics like what's yeah. the new website design what's happening and yeah. then literally after that the project team would be disbanded and everything would go back to normal it's like we have no idea what this fucking website's doing yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but with conversational AI, it is the stark opposite like it's, it's like the faster you can get live the better it is because the faster you learn the faster you can make it actually work exactly. and so it's like i think that's the best um argument for agile is that like let's not waste time doing stuff that we have no idea whether it's going to add value let's just build what we believe based on our research is going to be the most valuable thing and yeah. then let's get it live and let's iterate it as fast as we can <laughs> it's like you know yeah I yeah know. I, I feel i don't know about you but i feel i feel very privileged to work in this uh in this niche um mm. it's exciting you get to i i love educating people so whenever I'm working with a, like a, a project team, 
you know, I'm, I'm getting them excited about conversational AI. I'm sharing loads of my written content, past content with them. Because I've got a good library of content now, when they ask a question like, oh, they ask a question like, okay, so what should we choose as a name? You know, it's, it's a silly little thing now for me. Mm. But I'm like, oh, here you go. I've, I've, got this, I've got this massive library now of like posts that other people have done which actually mm. give advice on choosing your chatbot name and the pros and cons and all that. Or somebody will say about, well, okay, what about, you know, what do we need to consider in, in terms of brand? I'm like, ah, mm. I've got just the place for you and I'll send them off to somebody <laughs> else's content or something I've written. Um, mm. so I love the educational part of educating a team. And if I can leave them, you know, excited. I don't know about you, but I tend to work with customers really one to two years maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not just a quick fix. I tend to have the initial project, uh, and then there's normally three to six months of kind of settling down in aftercare, and mm-hmm. you know, iterative changes in that time, but not like the big project. Mm-hmm. And then there's normally a kind of let's pull together again, and then there's another push, another sprint. Mm-hmm. Right, this is what we've learned, and that's right. This is what we think we should do next, and they're they're often asking my advice. Do you think this is a good idea? Are we doing this too soon? Is this really going to help customers? You know, are we taking too big a risk? And then we come up with version two, which is what I'm doing with the client at the moment. Uh, that'll be, we'll start version two of their their conversational AI in January. And we have another big three month push. Whoa, really heavy mm. into it. Yeah, it's exciting. I'm, I'm very privileged to do what I do. Mm, it's a it's a great, it's a fantastic community as well. You know, it's uh, and it's such an interesting area that's developing rapidly. Um, what are some of those kind of um you mentioned their resources for some people who are you know a lot of people that listen to this are kind of practitioners and and you know all that kind of stuff so they they, they probably are fairly aware but like what are some of the resources that you kind of tend to point people to like you know books and stuff like that that you would recommend people people check out people yeah, so if, if you're, yeah if you're a book person then that whole book list that i create on linkedin is it's just absolutely masterful. Um, and that was interesting because I probably read 20% of those books and mm. some, some I wasn't even aware of. So when I asked the community, tell me your books and your authors and why you like the books, it just flooded in. So, you know, the content is there uh, and I'm just working my way through those. I'm an incessant reader. Um, mm. So in fact, over this quiet kind of Christmas and New Year, uh, I'll be downloading a few of those as audio books and blasting through them. Um, mm. Yeah, so I think nice. books are great if that's the way you like to learn. I tell you where where's lacking at the moment, and it's something I want to address next year is YouTube. Mm. If you go on, if you go and look for conversational AI content to learn, there's not a lot, mm. and it's it's mostly sales driven by the platform. Yeah. It's their content. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of independent content. Is that something that I, I think needs addressing? Podcasts mm-hmm. are becoming one of my sources now as well, uh, obviously. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I did actually reach out to the community and I've been given a big list of podcasts. So mm. first part of next year, I'm going to start listening to those and then build up another list of useful podcasts for people for learning. The, the joy mm. with podcasts is you've got that back history but you've yeah. also got always got new ideas and new content coming quickly. Whereas books, books don't really iterate. Whereas yeah. pod, podcasts iterate. 
you know, I don't know about you, but whenever I speak to people, they always change my mind about things that I almost thought were set in stone. But I talk yeah. to them and then I think, ah, oh, actually, I might be wrong there. That, yeah. that approach might not be the best approach. Or, uh, you know, for instance, I, I, I'm all over the place on chatbot personality. Yeah. On how much time and effort should be put into the persona. Mm. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm backwards forth on that. People are always changing my mind one way or the other. Um, yeah. I'm never steady on that one. Yeah, same here. I've been all over the place with that one. I've been in, I've been, you know, giving talks and stuff like that where I'm vouching for it, like it's unavoidable. I've worked with clients, which is like you have to do it. And then I kind of, at one point, probably middle middle of last year, I think it might have been, I kind of thought to myself, is this even needed? Like, what if you just didn't put any effort into it whatsoever? And I started to read a lot about like other people's perceptions on personality design and persona design. It's like a lot of it is, basically taken from um oh i can't remember the the books escaped me now but it's um oh, what's the book called i forget the name of it anyway there's a book there's this book that i can't remember the name of it um that kind of has a bunch of research in there which is that you know the sound of a voice can uh, you you can't help but draw a bunch of conclusions about who's speaking and stuff like that and if you don't and know kathy pearl and is, is kind of really big on sort of like if you don't design the personality then the people who uh interact with it will then just decide for themselves and i got really sort of into like trying to dig out all this theory and i kind of thought to myself like well what happens if you just didn't do any of that like what would be the actual impact and then i've kind of come back around to it again it's like well with voice you absolutely are making an impact on how people perceive the audio you can't switch your ears off and you can't help but make a a, a kind of decision about who is speaking and I, again, I'm all over, and, and we, we're kind of doing a, uh, we're doing something right now, which hopefully we'll be able to publish more about in the new year with a, a retailer in the UK, which is all about proving the value of that. So mm-hmm. hopefully, hopefully, uh, if we can publish it, maybe end of the first quarter, we might be able to say definitively in this case, this is the actual benefit of doing it or not. Yeah, which, yeah, there are. And customers do ask me, you know, where's the data to prove otherwise? It doesn't That's exist. It. That's yeah. it. Um, for me, sometimes I think it's really frivolous and a waste of a customer's, a client's hard-earned cash. Other times I think it's critical to brand. Um, I think voice is very different uh, to kind of chat experiences. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I'm doing a, a live on Friday where... Uh, I'm actually doing a bit on personality. So Juji is a chatbot platform, has a cognitive engine. So mm. it can ask you uh, a bit about your interests and your hobbies and your work and stuff like that. And from that, it can build a personality profile for you. Right. And it can actually show that to the customer or not. And mm. it, it needs, I think, slightly more than 50 words mm. uh, over two questions, so 100 words. And once it's got that, it's able to build a pretty accurate personality profile based on the big five. Mm. And then once you know that profile, you can respond in a certain voice. So you build the response and it says if this person is like, I don't know, a thinker, for instance, Mm -hmm. you know, you you look at those personality types, thinker, doer, you know, all those, you can respond very, very differently. And then Mm -hmm. that makes me think that actually building some personality in is really important Yeah. for personalised conversations. I don't know. Like you, I flip-flop all over the place. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, in that instance, again, it sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it does it make does a it difference? I, I, yeah, that's it. Uh, do, do you know Brian Romilly? Have you come across Brian Romilly? I don't recognise it. So he's a really interesting guy. If you if you go back and listen to some podcasts from like uh, maybe like this week in Voice, I think from like 2019, 2018 perhaps, he's on there quite a lot. And I think he's very much involved in crypto and stuff now. But he uh, he, he I believe I could be speaking incorrectly, but I believe he's the one of the people that coined the term Voice first yeah. uh, for like voice assistant stuff. And anyway. I always remember this thing that he mentioned on one of these podcasts I caught him on years ago, which was that he was saying that for voice assistants, what they should be doing is understanding that personality profile, the Myers-Briggs kind of personality sort of uh, persona, and then interacting with you accordingly. So if you're the kind of person that just wants to cut to the chase and doesn't really care about detail, then it should just tell you that I'm redirecting you because there's traffic and in order to get to work on time, we're going to, we're going to go somewhere else. Yes. If you're the kind of person that really likes detail and a bit more analytical and really wants things explained properly, then maybe you should say a bit more information about the fact that there's an accident, there's been three cars involved. If we go that way, it's going to take X amount longer and going this way is going to be a bit better. Uh, if you're the kind of person that wants to have things confirmed, is that okay with you? Should we do that? Yes, do that. And so he kind of give this vision of how what you've just described yeah. seemingly now it's beginning to manifest but like back then it was just a complete sort of like brain fart and at the time I remember thinking that would be really really good and I, think, I, and I think it is good it's impressive it's, it's just that the question still remains doesn't it about the impact it has uh, you know we know that the future of conversational AI is voice it, you know, it's, it, it really is um, mm. you know we're you know, like Star Trek have computer do this tell me that da 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 uh, that is that is the future we're heading to. Everybody will have their own digital concierge, uh, digital assistant. It will understand your personality. It will understand your likes and dislikes, uh, and it will treat you the way um, I was going to say treat you the way a wife would treat you. No, it will treat you. Let's <laughs> uh, not go near that. <laughs> yeah, it will treat you the way that somebody really understands you at a fundamental level would treat you. So mm. for me, I'm not detail orientated. Uh, I I don't like friction. Uh, you know, if I was going to book an Airbnb, even using the Airbnb website gets me annoyed. You know, yeah. I just want a digital concierge. I want to say, um, Jeff, can you just go and check Airbnb? I want uh, to spend a week here. Not nothing too flash, but it must have a bath, and I want it. You know, within at least ten minutes of the beach. If it's under two hundred quid, just book it. That's mm. what I want. You yeah, know, yeah. that's that's where voice is going. I think that's the future for all of us. I yeah. think it's going to be very personalised, voice-driven assistant. Mm. That could have been what Alexa, or maybe still could be what Alexa could be. Um, it's just very, very difficult to do that, um, as it Amazon is, yeah. has found and Siri has found and Viv has found. Um it's very difficult to do, yeah. But I, th- I, s- I still subscribe to that, to be honest. I think I think what may happen is that I fundamentally believe, I've, I've still got reservations about large language models in its totality, but when I look at things like ChatGPT, mm. I can see OpenAI in the next five to ten years maybe being the most disruptive company ever <laughs> because it will disrupt amazon entirely because oh, alexa oh. will be completely useless if chat gpt ends up becoming something that you can put onto a device or into a phone or into a watch or into some headphones and stick a voice 
user interface on front on, on the top of it. Alexa would just be completely redundant. Yeah. Google Assistant obviously would be redundant. Google Assistant's been made redundant in many places already. Um, and it would begin to make Google search for certain use cases become questionable. And so that future, I'm, I'm thinking about it now and look at the industry. I think, well, Google's pulling back. Amazon seemingly is pulling back a little bit. Apple have just been consistently maintaining their current scope. Yeah. Mycroft don't have the funding or the breadth to, to compete. Uh, Samsung, God knows what they, 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 that's the biggest wasted opportunity of this technology I've seen so far. Yeah. And it's like, it's all kind of petering down a bit. It seems to me as though it's gone through the hype cycle. It's now in the trough of disillusionment. Right. And something is going to pull it back up that slope. And I think it could be OpenAI. But OpenAI could be the engine behind all of those digital assistants. It could so, be. Yeah, that, that, is my, yeah. that was my thought, that they would just have an amazing API. And basically, all of those assistants that are already out there on devices would just plug in. But you could be right. They could be the next Apple. They could yeah. launch a voice-driven AI that is super personalized, super intelligent. Um, yeah, who knows? You know, I've, I've been playing around with it recently, and I'm, I'm thoroughly impressed. I can see how weak it is, but it just mm. gives you a little taste, just a little sniff of the future. <laughs> like all good drug dealers. Yes. <laughs> Enough of a taste to keep you keep you coming back for more. Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. It all depends on their strategy, you know. I mean, the the thing would be is that if they have this API that they just open up, then basically everyone would just use it, and then it becomes the the value of it becomes commoditized. Yeah. A little bit like the value of NLU is is it will definitely become commoditized in the next few years. The, yeah. the value isn't in the NLU; it's in how you apply it, the use cases you apply it to, how you design it, etc. How it integrates into your full service. Yes. Um, but it depends on what they want to do. They, they, because they've now got a bit of traction, it could be that if they have an approach which is the opposite of Google and Amazon and Apple, which is their approach is very much a closed ecosystem. Yeah. If OpenAI have a bit more of an open ecosystem, not to the point where you can see inside the black box necessarily, because I don't ever think I don't think many people even understand it anyway. But open enough to be able to allow you to plug certain things into it and control certain information that for example if you're coca-cola you know it's in everybody's interest for the information that it speaks about coca-cola to be kind of accurate yes you know and 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 it's the same for most brands so it's like if if they were able to give you some degree of influence over what's in there and figure out how you handle fulfillment which i think they will do sam altman alluded to the fact that fulfillment yeah. will be coming at some point in the future if they can do that it makes perfect sense for that then to be that assistant that is what alexa could have been if it was a bit more open a bit more collaborative and a bit more sort of uh thinking very long term rather than trying to control everything yeah, but then the other the other way is Apple just deep dig deep into their pockets and just buy OpenAI, and then yeah. Siri is, is the is the you know de facto choice, and more yeah. i devices are sold. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting. Wouldn't it? That would be very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know what? Yeah. It would it would it would tip the whole market on its head. Yeah, oh my, I, I could just see Google just oh, crying. Crying yeah. Oh, Google could Google could buy. I know they've got Lambda, which they're very hesitant to release. It's supposed yeah. to be pretty good, but like they could they could they could buy OpenAI. But it's the only thing that that 
annoys me a little bit about acquisitions is that from the point from my personal point of view i love this technology i absolutely think it is 100 percent the future i know lots of people that are building these companies and building this technology and i love them all and i love everyone who's involved in this whole community and i want to see all of that stuff be really successful in its own right and it kind of a little part of me dies a little bit when i see a good company get acquired by another company because i think they could have been fantastic you know you see botmock get acquired by walmart and you think that's it's 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 nice for walmart it's great for botmock i'm sure they all did really well out of it and i'm not just talking about that specific instance there's been lots of instances of these acquisitions but a little part of me just dies inside because i'd really want these independents to be really successful you know yeah but it's it's hard for them it's it takes a lot of drive and a lot of energy and it you know it tires them out so i i kind of understand why they sell but you know apple didn't sell no didn't sell yeah. Facebook didn't sell. Instagram, exactly. did. Instagram did, and it's worse for it. Yeah. 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 So it's yeah, it's it is challenging, and I suppose because you you know some of these people at a more personal level, you you want them to be the the next big company and, and follow yeah. their journey and almost be a part of it. So yeah, mm. I get it. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Nice one. Well, Jim, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been really, really interesting. I'm so, so appreciative of you making the time. Uh, thank you so much. I will put those links into the show notes, the posts that, that mentioned those books. Uh, I will put the, you mentioned the Botrepreneurs earlier on. We didn't really get a chance to speak about that, but I'll put the links to the Botrepreneurs stuff in there. Uh, your ebook as well, which I've downloaded. It's really good. I'll stick that in there. Um, and yeah, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Keep up the good work. I, uh, I'm probably your most uh, reliable viewer. <laughs> nice one. I appreciate that. Nice one. Appreciate it, Jim. Have a very Merry Christmas. And everybody else have a Merry Christmas. Uh, hopefully I will see you, actually, because we're doing another one with uh, Sonia Talati from GoDaddy tomorrow. Similar kind of time. Same bat time, same bat channel. So hopefully we'll see you on that one as the uh, final VUX World podcast before Christmas. Have a very, uh, very good day and week. And thank you again, Jim. And we'll speak very soon. All right. Take care. Cheers.